This is Set Aside Some Time, an MSPN podcast, and it's brought to you by the National MSP Network, or MSPN for short. And now, on to the episode. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for setting aside some time for us today. I'm Annie Davidson, your host for today's podcast. I'm the Senior MSP Compliance Counsel and Policy Strategist for ExamWorks Compliance Solutions. I'm also an MSPN board member and co-chair of the MSPN Policy and Legislative Committee. Joining us today, we have Bill Delaney and Patrick Saprinsky. Uh, Bill is a partner at the Chicago-based law firm Nyhan Bambrick, Kinsey & Lowry, and Patrick is the Director of Lean Resolution at Impacts, formerly NewQuest. Welcome, gentlemen. Thanks, Annie. And just to make sure we're, we're being clear, you know, this uh, presentation is, is mostly just for educational purposes. And, and we're going to be talking about uh, quite a view, uh, quite a different, uh, quite a, a spectrum of issues and topics uh, containing judicial payments. Um, but this is, you know, we're not providing legal advice here. We're just trying to talk these out and, and give people some, some information um, that they can take back and use for their own purposes. Perfect. Thanks, Patrick. Absolutely. Not legal advice, right? Um, Our overall conversation today is going to be focused in the conditional payment realm. And we are going to be talking about the appeals process. And we're going to discuss with both Bill and Patrick their strategies and tactics that they use when they file disputes, when they file appeals, uh, what they argue at the ALJ hearing level and uh, what they see if they have taken cases to the Medicare Appeals Council for review. So specifically, we're aiming to focus on um, citations they've used, arguments that you guys have had success with, whether that's the MSP statute itself, uh, provisions of the Code of Federal Regulations, case law, and certainly any state or local statutes, regulations, case law um, that you've used, and the arguments that you've had success with. Uh, But before we kind of dive into those specifics, I wanted to just do a quick level set to make sure all the listeners here are going to be able to follow along. Um, So when we're talking about the conditional payment recovery process, we're talking about recovery by one of two contractors by Medicare, and they kick out certain correspondence. So you may see a conditional payment letter come in, you may see a notice, you may see a demand, a notice of intent to refer, or something called a treasury notice. Um, Ultimately, today, we're probably going to focus mostly on the demand, and that being the trigger for the formal five-level appeal process. Um, There are some informal disputes that can be filed on a notice or a letter, um, but we're really going to focus our time probably mostly on, you know, what happens once a demand has been issued and you've asked for a uh, first, second, third level appeal, et cetera. So to level set on the five-level appeals process, then the first level of appeal is called a redetermination. And that's where the case, you're going to ask for the case to go right back to that same recovery contractor for a do-over. And those recovery contractors, you may hear us talk about them. One is the Commercial Repayment Center, or the CRC, and the other is the Benefits Coordination and Recovery Contractor, or the BCRC. So those are the acronyms that we may be using uh, as we go through this. And then a second level appeal is called a reconsideration. 
And that goes to a different contractor than the first level appeal. It goes to a qualified independent contractor. And the two entities that are contracted with the federal government for that are C2C Innovative Services or Maximus Federal Services. So you may hear us refer to either one as C2C or Maximus. That's what we're talking about. The third level of appeal is for an ALJ hearing, an administrative law judge hearing, uh, where you can get oral argument and explain to a CMS judge, um, you know, plead your case and and see if they'll um, find in your favor. The fourth level of review is the Medicare Appeals Council. Primarily, they do record review. They they look at the overall record and, and will take a peek at it. There are some instances where you could potentially request oral argument, um, but very few cases rise to the third and fourth levels. And then the fifth level of appeal, which we won't talk about probably too much today, um, but on rare occasions, you will see a case make its way to the federal district court. Um, So that's just our level set. Now, I want to dive right in and I want to start kind of back with informal disputes and appeals for a moment uh, and really kind of ask, I guess I'll start with you, Patrick. How important is it when you're looking at a conditional payment summary form that Medicare has sent with a demand asking to get their money back uh, because they think it's all related to the claimed injury? How important is it to you or for whoever's drafting these to be thinking about making all of their arguments that they see available to them, right? So maybe one is some of these charges are unrelated. Maybe another is, you know, some of these charges fall before or after, you know, before the injury or after the injury settled. Um, And then, you know, some of these are bundled. Um, There's lots of different things, right? Maybe there's an unauthorized treater involved or you got all sorts of things going on. How important is it that you get all of the arguments in at that level of dispute or your first level of appeal? So the one thing I would say is that the, you know, the regulations require specific content in your appeal. And, and one of those is to list the items or services that you are disputing. So while you're listing those items and services, you also want to identify the, the basis you know, for that uh, removal for those conditional payments. So by, by doing that, you're, you know, you're following uh, the rules that Medicare set out for these appeals, at least with the, you know, the content part of you know, why the item or service is being removed. Um, but you're, you're also setting this up uh, for movement along that administrative appeal process that you outlined. So you, you want to make sure you're including all the arguments uh, at the lower levels um, so that they're being reviewed by Medicare. So if you move into federal court, you, you've given Medicare the opportunity to field you know, these disputes and an opportunity to issue a response. You know, whether they do or not is up to them. But uh, a judge or, or a court later in, in the, the course of the appeal process, if necessary, uh, can't kick it out because you didn't raise that argument on a lower level. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. You know, the the review that we get sort of throughout this process is de novo, right? <laughs> kind of each level, they're kind of looking at it fresh, but really, truly, 
at the first line, when you're able to file an appeal, it's important to have everything, all of the arguments that you can make and all of the evidence ideally um, at that time. Now, if something comes in down the line or you know, you're getting this after somebody's tried an appeal themselves and they're asking you for help at it at a later level, you might be a little bit hamstrung. Um, and, and you know, all hope isn't lost. You can certainly still make the arguments, but to Patrick's point, it gets a little bit harder. And certainly if you if you think this case could wind up in federal district court or something like that, you know, you may have a little bit more difficulty raising those arguments. Um, at the end, Bill, I guess one of the questions I have for you is what are you considering when, when a file sort of walks in your door with a conditional payment, uh, you know, notice or letter or demand, what, you know, what do you do? What should folks do when they get one of these letters and what should they be thinking about, uh, in terms of reviewing that for relatedness and, and kind of taking it to Patrick's point of, of starting to make those arguments. Well, the first thing and the most important thing are the deadlines. Uh, there's deadlines on conditional payment notices. Uh, you've got 30 days to issue a response, but if you don't, that's not going to defeat your appeal because then a demand letter will issue, which gives you 120 days to issue a response. So you want to make sure, first off, that you're meeting the deadlines. Second, Patrick, or Patrick mentioned that uh, you want to look at each of the conditional payment claims. And it's important uh, to check the diagnosis codes and the reported diagnosis codes because uh, those reported diagnosis codes really are what CMS is basing their conditional payment claims on. Another very important uh, thing to do is obtain medical records. Um, sometimes you can go just on the diagnosis codes because it's, it's clear. Uh, you've got a leg injury and all the treatments for a shoulder injury. But other times it's not so clear. There'll be like chronic pain or some other general diagnosis code or CPT code that uh, is listed in the conditional payment especially on conditional payments that are for a significant amount of money, such as hospital stays or surgeries, you're definitely gonna to wanna to get those medical records because they are definitive in terms of whether the treatment is related or not. Um, the other issues looking at whether the, the provider is authorized, I know in Illinois, there's. There's a choice of doctor rule and you only get two choices of doctor. So if it's the third doctor, um, that's not uh, something that the workers' compensation carrier is required to pay for. And in California, there's the medical provider network that also limits the provider treatment. So it's kind of like a workers' compensation hearing or a hearing in any, any litigated case you want to um, marshal the facts that you can produce to defend and assert your position that the conditional payments are not related. And you set yourself up, not, a, not just for federal court, but also for the process through the QIC, through the ALJ, et cetera. And you mentioned it just briefly, you mentioned a case, situations where we pick up cases sometimes that were handled by somebody else. 
And, and I, I had that recently and they did not, uh, the prior uh, entity that was, was uh, disputing the conditional payments did not get the medical records. Um, so I'm at the QIC point and the QIC comes down and says, well, um, the codes, um, regardless of whether the treatment was related or not, because the codes say that, or include one of the reported codes, uh, we're, we're taking the position that Medicare is entitled to reimbursement. So what I did at the ALJ level in that case was I obtained the medical records, which showed that the treatment was clearly unrelated, even though there was a related code in there. And I argued, and you've got to show good cause for additional evidence. I argued that I was rebutting uh, the QIC's determination, which hadn't been made by the uh, CRC, I believe it was. So um, there is opportunity to get records in later, but you've got to make sure uh, if you, if you got it from the outset, uh, that you've got your records and also that um, you include law. I recommend that you include the law that you include at the ALJ uh, because a lot of times the CRC and the QIC seem to do a cursory review of it and maybe the law will you know, give you a shot at it, or at least certainly sets you up for the ALJ showing, look, I've made this argument, it's a valid argument, and you should uh, remove these conditional payments. Yeah, and that's a good point, Bill, because uh, if you can get your hands on the medical records, that's great. Um, and I know in some jurisdictions, you have really robust discovery, and you may have, you know, and this was certainly my case when I practiced in Minnesota, we oftentimes, if that person had treated from birth until present at a hospital, we had all those records just because of how robust the discovery law is here and, and what you end up getting. But in a state like Illinois, where you practice, right, like discovery isn't super robust. And one of the ways that you can quickly find yourself hamstrung is if you are trying to prove a negative. And we know Medicare likes to force us to do this in the MSA realm, but in the conditional payment realm, it comes up a little bit too. You're forced to show Medicare that this date of service is not in fact related to the injury. And um, that can be really challenging if you're not entitled to someone's personal medical records to show that, hey, this was treatment for a personal condition. I think this gets at a little bit of burden shifting. And I was wondering, Patrick, I know you and I have talked about this before, but what is your goal? Like what, what's the threshold here when you're trying to dispute or appeal unrelated conditional payments or conditional payments for another reason why they shouldn't be payable? Uh, what are you thinking about it? And like, what does it take to shift the burden and, and how, do, how are you trying to best do that? Uh, and that's a really good question. I think it really plays off of what Bill was saying. And what Bill is talking about is, you know, obtaining the medical records for the dates of services listed by Medicare. So you're getting the best evidence that's available to demonstrate the, the treatment or service doesn't require reimbursement under the Secondary Payer Act. And, and there are those states that are, are limited uh, in their discovery. And, you know, I had a case in Idaho where uh, the carrier reported ORM for the incident, but the claimant never pursued a work complaint. 
no claim was filed, and nothing was actually pursued by the claimant. And because of the way uh, the carrier understood the Idaho law worked, if they didn't have uh, the ability to subpoena any records because nobody had filed a claim, so no commission or anybody had jurisdiction to issue a subpoena. So they reported ORM, Medicare was collecting all this money, um, and we worked through the administrative appeal process and got to the ALJ. And the, the ALJ agreed that, you know, although we didn't have the, the specific medical records listed by Medicare, we were still able to overcome the burden that reimbursement was required. And and that that ties into the goal or you know what I'm shooting for, which generally, you know, my argument is if you can provide prima facie evidence, so documentation that that demonstrates on its face that reimbursement shouldn't be required, that shifts the burden over to Medicare to, to do more than just say there's a related diagnosis code, therefore reimbursement is required. And so that that's really what I'm shooting for is you know any type of evidence that's going to at least prove on its face or support on its face that the charges don't require reimbursement, you know, uh, uh, you know, for practicing uh, sake, you definitely want to try and get the best evidence if it's available. Um, but a lot of times that that isn't the case, and so you're you're sort of making lemonade with what you have. Um, but the 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 reason that that shit is working, you know, more often than not, is we, we are providing you know, documentation on space that, that demonstrates the charges don't require reimbursement. And the idea here is that, you know, if the carrier is stating this charge is denied and unauthorized, why are they, why is that not being looked at as testimony? Because testimony is evidence and it may not be the best evidence, but it certainly is evidence that should be considered by, you know, Medicare and, you know, the ALJs and throughout the process. Well, and I think that's a really good point, too, because a lot of the when, when we're looking at how the recovery process operates, particularly on admitted work comp claims, which is a lot of what I think the three of us handle, but certainly there are denied work comp claims or liability claims where you're, you know, working to help a beneficiary with a dispute or an appeal. But with these kind of rolling recovery cases that come out of the commercial repayment center or the CRC, oftentimes if there's an error in the ICD-10 code reporting or Patrick in the instance that you just talked about where a carrier or self-insured reports that they have ongoing responsibility for medicals, despite the fact that the individual never brings a claim, you're kind of dealing with a you know, an interplay between the section 111 data and the arguments based on the facts and uh, what may actually be the case. And so when you're taking these cases, you know, maybe from the first or second level of appeal, and you start to look at bringing these in front of an ALJ, um, what are your experiences with ALJs? Do you find that they're knowledgeable about the MSP law, or, you know, are you able to walk them through regulations? Certainly when it's state law and um, state regs, I would think, you know, that's going to take a little bit more education on, on your part. But I guess, um, I guess I'll start with you, Patrick, and then we can go over to Bill. 
um, what's your experience? Do these ALJs, you know, have an idea of what you're talking about and kind of the complexity there that might be in place sometimes? You know, I think initially uh, when these cases start rolling through, um, most, if not all judges, didn't seem too knowledgeable of this space. And so I think there was a lot of um, education that, that you're having to do uh, during the hearing, you know, which is another great reason to have those hearings, you know, with the ALJs, because then you can at least answer any questions and, you know, you know, help surmise, you know, the Medicare Secondary Payer Act and maybe point them in the right directions. So, but, you know, initially it was kind of, uh, I think, more, more of uh, educating on what's happening, why we're here, and why Medicare is seeking reimbursement. Um, and it, lately, it seems that there's been, you know, a, a turnaround. So judges seem to be more uh, uh, understanding or at least uh, appreciating the fact that either they don't know a whole lot about it or they, they started to, to look into it and, you know, what the requirements are. You know, I do think a little too much uh, credence is given to QIC decisions. And I, I just wish or hope that the ALJs are being more critical uh, with the QIC decisions because they're, they're very formulaic in a form response. And, and a lot of times don't actually um, discuss the facts of the case and are just um, a form. So, Bill, what about you? I, uh, my experience has been that the, and it's far less than Patrick Patrick's, but my experience uh, has been that the ALJs are knowledgeable um, and, and see through the QIC uh, decisions that are, that are without merit um, and, and getting to the the, one of the topics of the, and purposes of the of the program, which is citations, uh, you'll see I, at least in the decisions I've gotten from the ALJs, um, they have uh, a law and section where they cite the applicable law. Um, they rely on both the secondary payer statute. They rely on the Code of Federal Regulations, and they rely on the Medicare Secondary Payer Manual. Um, and there is um, an understanding, at least in the cases I've had, uh, because I see that in the decisions that, that Medicare is bound by their policy and guidance and by the Code of Federal Regulations. So, um, the, the Medicare Secondary Payer Manual is a, contains a wealth of uh, citations and assistance along with the Code of Federal Regulations to those of us who are trying to remove conditional payments. And uh, a brief war story here to, to uh, bring this point home is um, I had a case recently where, and, and this happens with some frequency, um, the claimant had both a neck injury that was work-related and a low back injury that was not work-related. And parsing that out was difficult. Um, 
I didn't have the health insurance claim forms, which would probably be helpful in the future. Uh, but I did have the medical records and the medical records were pretty clear that the doctors were treating both. And the, the claimant ended up having, which was the main expense and claimed by Medicare, the main conditional payment, a, a spinal cord stimulator put in with leads for both the cervical spine, which was work-related, and the lower back, which was not work-related. Uh, so I made the argument, uh, well, let me step back. The QIC decided, well, since the conditional payment claims all included one of the related uh, uh, body parts, that is the cervical spine, that we're going to take the position that the primary payer owes everything, and we're not going to break it down. Uh, the and my argument to the ALJ was, well, look, the, the, the policy and the guidance for CMS is that where a worker's compensation plan does not pay for all services furnished to the beneficiary, Medicare benefits may be paid for those services not covered under workers' comp. And that is right from section 50.1B of chapter two of this Medicare secondary payer manual that anyone can easily find on the internet by Googling Medicare secondary payer manual. It's, it's CMS has the whole manual online. Uh, chapters two and seven I found are, are very helpful. Um, so I that citation right there from the, the Medicare secondary payer manual got me a long way to uh, convincing the ALJ that, look, um, just because there was concurrent treatment doesn't mean that the primary payer uh, owes for all the treatment. And things got better because section 50.1C of chapter two of the Medicare secondary payer manual says that if workers' compensation does not pay for all of the charges because only a portion of the services is compensable, i.e. the patient received services for a condition which was not work-related concurrently with services which were work-related, Medicare benefits may be paid to the extent the services are not covered by any other source which is primary to Medicare. So those two sections of the Medicare Secondary Payer Act were relied on by the ALJ to accept my argument uh, that we agree we owe for the cervical spine, but we clearly don't owe for the lumbar spine. And I had medical records that clearly established uh, along that the cervical spine was related to the work accident and the lumbar spine wasn't. I also had the first report of injury. I also had, um, uh, oh, I can't remember what else I had, but I had, I had the first report of injury. I had the records and that was enough uh, for the ALJ to then uh, eliminate or remove the charges for the lumbar spine and this is the classic bundled claim uh, scenario, of course, where, there, and, and it's oftentimes found in hospital uh, charges where they, where everything the person has is thrown in when they're in for a, 
uh, you know, dog bite. Um, they got hypertension. They got cervical spine problems. They got chronic pain. Um, you've got to be able to talking about burns. You've got to be able to establish that that treatment that's concurrent, um, that's unrelated, should not be uh, recovered, or should not be the I should say should not be the responsibility of the primary payer. So. The Medicare secondary payer manual is a great source um, and it is uh, recognized by the uh, ALJs. There's a, a uh, 42 CFR 405.10062A um, says that policy and guidance from an agency is entitled to substantial deference. And then there's a Supreme Court case actually, Shalala uh, 514 US 87 which states that it's reasonable for an agency to follow agency manual sections and guidance. So um, that's uh, a great source I found for uh, supporting your particular dispute. That's a huge win uh, for you. And I think that uh, one of the biggest pieces that where we see CMS kind of getting money that maybe they shouldn't be entitled to is around bundling. They bundle related and unrelated charges. And most everyone that's probably listening is familiar with the Sega versus Burwell case that had come out of California. And I think a lot of folks try to use that to support arguments where you're trying to tell the contractors, Hey, you know, this, th these codes are bundled with unrelated treatment. And the arguments that Bill just laid out, I think, or the, the citations rather, are really important for people to take note. Like, I hope everybody had their notepads out or please, you know, rewind and go back and write that down. If you're fighting the good fight around bundling and relatedness, because the Sega versus Burwell argument, um, we see, you know, both the qualified independent contractor and we see sometimes ALJs just throwing that out the window and saying, okay, well, Sega versus Burwell happened before this five level appeal process was in place. So too bad, so sad. And with Bill's story here that he just shared, that gives you ammunition to go right back at the uh, contractors and even an ALJ armed and ready to kind of do that burden shifting argument, right, that we were already talking about, shift the burden back to CMS for them to show how in the heck they're entitled to you know, a full reimbursement when in Bill's case, it was half related to an admitted injury and half of it was related to um, a personal low back condition. So kudos to you, Bill. Congrats on that. I guess, Patrick, do you have any citations, you know, war stories you want to share quick here as we start to kind of round things out? Um, maybe you've had, you know, appearances from someone at Maximus and, you know, arguments you've had to defend against. Um, do you want to just share a little bit about your experiences with, with various citations and maybe um, some, some more stories? Sure, sure. Yeah, you know, I think the, the most recent uh, one I'll, I'll highlight, um, you know, one of the regulations that I'm using quite frequently is the uh, 42 CFR 411.40 in paren B2, I believe. And, and what this regulation states is that Medicare is a primary payer 
for unauthorized providers treatment. So that, that issue that Bill was talking about earlier, you know, in California, you might have a medical provider network. Um, in Illinois, there's that two choice uh, provider rule. Um, you know, there, there's many other states that also have something similar, you know, Kansas or Florida, um, you know, Missouri, I believe, you know, there are uh, states that when it comes to a workers' compensation claim, you're not required to pay everything under the claimant's treatment. It's also contingent upon if there's a, you know, that reimbursement is required under your workers' compensation law. So that's where that, that regulation is sort of fitting under. So you can argue, you know, unauthorized provider, here's the documentation that may establish who the authorized provider is and we're showing the bills. Um, and that's how we're demonstrating, you know, who's the authorized provider and Medicare's list of providers are not this authorized provider. So you can demonstrate or prove that negative to Medicare uh, with that regulation. You know, I, I recently had some success uh, at the administrative law, uh, law judge level uh, arguing the three-year date of service argument. So there's a, in the, the Medicare Secondary Payer Act, there's a statute that, or provision um, that states, you know, when Medicare is requesting reimbursement, they should only be listing the past three years of payments. So if your um, uh, demand is, you know, January 1st, 2022, the only treatment that Medicare should be able to list in their recovery is from January 1st, 2019, because that's three years within their request for, for payment. And, you know, this, you know, my argument is that this this statute is in there, so Medicare can't just, you know, ask for everything uh, under the sun, you know, for the past 10 years, because there has to be some sort of, you know, reasonableness or like safety valve to all this. So, you know, uh, it's my belief that that's what that provision is for. And so I, I made those arguments um, to the ALJ in two cases, and they both, they both were accepted. Um, in one circumstance, we had a, a settlement, I think at the end of December uh, 2020, um, we reported the settlement in January. Medicare issued a demand in March, so two months after uh, reporting the settlement. But their, their request for reimbursement was from you know, date of injury to date of settlement. So there was uh, almost all the charges were more than three years from that demand. Um, and the, the judge accepted that that statute applied to that settlement. So we were able to remove about twenty-three or $24,000 in conditional payments that appeared related to the claim, but they still were outside the three-year date of service. And so that, that, that particular statute you know, played a big impact on that. And, and here's the other aspect is, you know, you, you have these uh, claimants and carriers who are settling these cases, and a lot of times you may not get, uh, you know, a, a, an accurate uh, estimate before your settlement for Medicare. So, we're, you know, we do see a lot of customers sort of getting um, uh, blindsided by, you know, an extravagant demand that now includes, you know, 10 years of treatment. And and that's, these are the reasons why that statute's in there. So, Yes, Medicare is required to be reimbursed, but there's significant limitations on, on what's required to be reimbursed, and this statute is one of those. 
the other just aspect, you know, the other case where we had success was in an, an ORM reporting case. So the, the carrier self-insured reported ORM in, I think it was like October of 2011. And Medicare received this information uh, it, around that time, but didn't process or issue a demand until November of 2017. So we're now talking, you know, I reported ORM to you, Medicare, and six years later, you're finally coming out and demanding payments. And again, those charges were more than three years from the request for payment. And, you know, based upon those circumstances, the, the ALJ agreed that the charges don't require reimbursement. And so, you, you know, you are seeing Medicare being limited uh, at the administrative law judge level, uh, sort of in these extreme fashions, you know, and I think um, the, the settlement one is, I think is really important. And I think, um, because again, that, that is limiting Medicare from blindsiding people with these extravagant demands, you know, without, you know, um, when it's really not necessary, you know, the reimbursement uh, requirement for settlements is up to the amount of settlement, um, you know, so I think, you know, with those limitations, I think you're, you know, you would see a better resolution that, you know, Medicare will get paid what they're supposed to under the act, and we can all just move along instead of, you know, keep on uh, appealing these uh, situations where they're, they're certainly asking for more than what's required. Well, congrats to you and kudos to you on those cases too, Patrick, because I think um, that that's huge being able to limit someone's exposure based on just, you know, stale recovery handling by Medicare and Medicare's contractors. Um, so I think that's, that's key again, folks, you know, pause the recording, go back, you know, jot down what Patrick's talking about, reach out to Patrick. You can reach out to Bill. You can reach out to, to me. We're all happy to, you know, help in any way we can and, and get you connected with any specific questions because these cases, you know, come at you sort of fast and furious. There's interplay with Section 111 reporting. And so if something is wonky or if ORM, you know, got reported by accident or somebody forgot to fill in an ORM termination date, you know, that gives Medicare more time. It sort of tolls that statute of limitations that Medicare might have. And so really like understanding all the tools in your toolbox and creative citations, I think, uh, can really go a long way. And I, I really appreciate both of you taking some time out of your day uh, to record this and share with uh, the MSPN audience, the podcast audience, um, some of your kind of tips and tricks with getting this stuff in front of either the contractors or certainly getting it up to the ALJ. I think that's where you can have a more reasonable head prevail because to Bill's point, the qualified independent contractors kind of seems to be doing a cursory review. Uh, you can see that in some of the language, the boilerplate language that they include. And I've certainly attacked uh, the quick and, and sort of weaken their cases just by pointing out that fact to the ALJ that, okay, you know, maybe they have counsel here today and they're, they're um, appearing and they're making some arguments, but your honor, let's look back at what the quick said. And they got this case completely wrong. This is a CRC case, you know, against a, a carrier. And here they are throwing language in saying the beneficiary is still the debtor. You know, the, there was language like that going out and it just showed that there was no meaningful review really happening 
at the quick level. So please, everyone, use all the tools you have available to you and um, reach out to either one of our wonderful guests here today. Uh, thank you so much, Bill and Patrick, for stopping by today. Uh, before we go out, I wanted to also just thank the audience in general for setting aside some time to listen to this podcast and our past podcasts. We will have another one coming up here soon. The focus will be a preview of our upcoming MSPN annual conference uh, and a focus on member appreciation. While I've just mentioned the conference, I want to extend uh, an invite to all of the listeners here uh, to attend. You don't want to miss out. It's going to be in person this year again. Uh, after a few years of going virtual, we are back in person. We will be back at the live casino in Baltimore, Maryland, and the conference will be September 21st through the 23rd. So if you haven't already registered, please head over to mspnnetwork.org to get details and to register. With that, I wish you all a wonderful day. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.